0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 28 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues, and ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and moderator of today's program. It is my pleasure to introduce the second speaker in our fall series on rebuilding. Jack Nelson-Palmeyer teaches in the Justice and Peace Studies Department at the University of St. Thomas. He holds a degree in political science from St. Olaf College and a Masters of Divinity from Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Before coming to St. Thomas, he served as National Program Coordinator for the Politics for Food program with clergy and laity concerned, and he directed the Minnesota-based Hunger and Justice Project for the American Lutheran Church and the Lutheran Church in America. With his wife, Sarah, he spent two years in Managua, Nicaragua, serving as director of a house of studies sponsored by the Center for Global Education at Augsburg College. Over the years, Jack has been become increasingly active in Minnesota politics, and this past year ran as a candidate for the U.S. Senate. His candidacy was distinguished by its strong rejection of negative politics, by a hope-filled vision that drew a large, highly committed, and active base. He is the author of 12 books and is currently working on another, the focus of which is the basis for his talk today at the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Building a Social Movement that Will Rescue the Nation and Save the Earth. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Jack Nelson-Palmeyer.
1: I want to thank you all for coming today, and thank you to the Westminster Town Hall Forum for the opportunity to address a topic, Building a Social Movement to Rescue a Nation and Heal the Earth. Now, I suspect that whatever criticism I get after today will likely not be that I shied away from big problems. (laughs) I want to highlight today five critical challenges The first is that we have only a few years to address climate change and build a sustainable economy. The second is in order to do so, we must redefine security and fundamentally change the direction of U.S. foreign policies. The third is that the central focus of U.S. domestic and foreign policy must be to meet essential needs and enhance the quality of life while we respect the well-being of future generations and the earth itself. Fourth, to meet these challenges, we must build a social movement with sufficient power to revitalize our democracy that at present is compromised by moneyed interests and corporate power. And finally, and really importantly, because so many people feel powerless. We must face these challenges with courage and with hope. Now, one clarification. I chose the title, which included to rescue a nation, several months ago. (laughs) Now, I have been warning for years that the United States was headed for a fiscal train wreck. There was so much evidence. Wages were falling or stagnant. Deceptive lending practices and subprime loans created trillions of dollars of paper profits and created the illusion of expanded home ownership. President Bush's promise of an ownership society turned out to be a debt peonage society. Millions of Americans survived or temporarily tried to maintain their living standards with credit card debt or by selling off their homes through home equity loans. healthcare costs continued to soar, and the number of people without adequate health insurance continued to grow. Basic infrastructure deteriorated, from schools to the electric grid to roads and bridges. When a bridge fell down, we all felt the tragedy, but we seemed to miss the larger significance. And war and war profiteering was spiraling out of control. We had for too long ignored the wise counsel of General Eisenhower who reminded us that every gun that we make and warship we launch is ultimately a theft from the poor and his warnings about the rise of the military-industrial complex. Our trade and budget deficits, already outrageous, increased dramatically before the recent meltdown, the Bush administration added $4 trillion to our national debt, and the United States was running annual trade deficits of $850 billion. Trillions of dollars were recycled from China and the oil-rich states onto Wall Street, where casino-like investment houses made massive profits at the expense of the U.S. people and the U.S. economy and wealth and income disparities grew. In 1980, the pay gap separating CEOs from the average worker was 42 to 1. In 2007, it was 344 to 1. In fact, the top 50 private equity and hedge fund fund managers earned on average 19,000 times as much as the average worker. So in short, as I, although I believed an economic train wreck was coming, I didn't know the derailment was going to happen before I spoke. So I speak to you today about rescuing a nation. My thoughts include the economic crisis, but they also go beyond that crisis. Well, I come before you today with a commitment to honesty, a profound sense of urgency, and a fragile but enduring sense of hope. We are living in what I call the most important decade. We didn't choose this, but our past choices have brought us to this critical juncture. And as Yogi Berra said, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. (laughs) In a nutshell, our dilemma Our great challenge, our responsibility is this, the decisions we make in the next few years will determine the quality of life for all future generations. This is the unheeded warning of the climate scientist. Jim Hansen, the lead environmental scientist at NASA, warns we have at most 10 years. If human beings follow a business as usual course, he says, life will survive, but it will do so on a transformed planet. For all foreseeable human generations, it will be a far more desolate world. Lester Brown, winner of the United Nations Environmental Award, writes similarly. He says it is hard to find words to convey the gravity of our situation and the momentous nature of the decision we are about to make. How can we convey the urgency of this moment in history? Will tomorrow be too late? Will someone one day erect a tombstone for our civilization? If so, what will it say? It cannot say we did not understand. We do understand. It cannot say we did not have the resources. We do have the resources. It can only say that we were too slow to respond to the forces undermining our civilization. Time ran out. There is a huge and growing body of evidence that says we must act decisively now to avoid multiple climate-related disasters. The threats include melting glaciers, rising sea levels, and coastal flooding that could trigger hundreds of millions of climate refugees. Hunger, famine, and prolonged droughts. Expanding deserts, disappearing coral reefs, heat waves, destructive wildfires, shortages of clean water, hurricanes, spreading diseases, resource wars, and the extinction of species. We are told that critical thresholds have already been crossed, and yet we need to remember that it is not yet too late. Hansen says a positive outcome is still feasible, but barely. The chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says if there's no action by 2012, it's too late. What we do in the next two to three years will determine our future. This is the defining moment. The enormity of this crisis raises an important question for each of us. How do we live responsibly with what we know? This question can only be answered with integrity if we have a deep desire to learn and a willingness to change our lives in light of what we learn. This may be what Jesus had in mind when he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Some news is hard to receive as blessing. I ride an emotional roller coaster as I try to come to terms with the implications of of climate change. I'm sad that our children's future is threatened. I'm motivated because of the love that I have for children, including my daughters Hannah and Audrey and Naomi. I resent the scientists who warn us of the dangers, but I'm grateful that the scientists alert us and call us to action. I'm mad at myself and at others that we've waited so long. I'm inspired by the growing citizen activism. I begrudge living in the most important decade. Why me? Why now? I'm glad to be alive at this critical moment because I and we have a chance to make a difference. I feel trapped in a web of destructive systems that limit my choices. And I'm hopeful because I know that better public policies will make it easier for me and for others to act responsibly. I'm frustrated because my country has obstructed efforts to address climate change and by the timid voices of most of our politicians. And I'm encouraged by the growing chorus of voices demanding real change. I feel overwhelmed. I feel determined because I know that hope is often found amidst profound challenges, which tempt us to despair. Will Steger notes that in the United States, some people still don't think global warming is happening. He says even a greater danger, they don't think there's anything we can do about it. The public's confusion isn't accidental. ExxonMobil spent millions of dollars and gave that money to dozens of groups to discredit the science of global warming. The Bush administration distorted the science and silenced the credible scientists. The good news is that we can address climate change and build a sustainable economy in time to heal the earth. It won't be easy, but it's possible. Lester Brown, by way of example, lays out a practical and hopeful agenda by which we cut carbon emissions by 80% and build a sustainable economy by 2020. Central features of his plan include conservation, raising energy efficiency throughout our economy, phasing out coal and nuclear power plants, developing renewable energy resources, electric plug-in hybrid cars, high-speed electric rail, urban mass transit systems, all powered by the wind, and planting billions and billions of trees to sequester carbon. Brown also recognizes, as we must, that global warming is part of a broader crisis in which ecological needs clash with present economic practices and injustices and population growth trends. This means that the United States and other developed countries must rapidly deploy renewable energy technologies and make them available to developing countries. But we must also assist efforts to end poverty, to empower women, and to restore broader ecological systems. Our world is threatened by climate change caused by burning fossil fuels. It is also fracturing, and the Earth's ecology is faltering under the weight of present inequalities. Nearly half the world's people are struggling to live on less than $2 a day. The three richest people in the world have assets greater than the combined gross domestic products of the 48 poorest countries. Global population currently at 6.8 billion will soar to over 9 billion by 2050 unless we have a concerted effort to end poverty, restore the environment, and slow birth rates. Now Brown lays out an eradicating poverty initiative it would promote universal primary education for all children in healthcare, adult literacy, school lunch programs and assistance to preschool children and pregnant women, reproductive health and family planning. He also describes earth restoration goals, reforesting the earth, revitalizing local and regional agricultural systems, protecting topsoil and biodiversity, restoring rangelands and ocean fisheries, and stabilizing water tables. Eradicating poverty and restoring ecological systems are inspiring goals. They can unite diverse peoples and governments throughout the world. I believe that these goals should be at the heart of a new and constructive role for our country in the world, a role that many of us long for. The price tag is modest a hundred and sixty billion dollars a year. The cost which could be borne by many nations is about one-quarter of the U.S. military spending this year. The cost is less than two-thirds of the annual subsidies given to the fossil fuel industries worldwide. You know, it is important that we stop being manipulated by a politics of fear, but it is imperative that we fully grasp the urgent need to act to heal the earth now. Brown says what we need is to act with the same urgency that the United States did in responding to World War II when we transformed our economy in a matter of months. He says the stakes in World War II were high, but they are far higher now, and we need to recognize it. It is a hopeful sign that hundreds of cities and many states are moving forward to address climate change. Minnesota adopted the best renewable energy standard in the country last year. Many young people and communities of faith are taking on this issue. Millions of Americans are changing light bulbs, driving less, walking, biking, and using public transit more. Even many reluctant politicians in Washington are now talking about global warming. But we must be careful not to confuse their words or the modest efforts taken so far by individuals and cities and states with effective action. The hard truth is that present responses to climate change are woefully inadequate. For example, US leaders are proposing 80% reductions in carbon emissions by 2050. Too little, too late. The promise of clean coal is more illusion than reality. Drilling more oil will reinforce our dependency, not end it. And Thomas Friedman, who I rarely agree with, said something I did recently. He said, drill, drill, is like shouting, typewriter, typewriter. Nuclear power is an expensive, dangerous technology driven by corporate profiteers dressed green. And corn-based ethanol is causing a myriad of problems, as is Europe's promotion of biofuels based on the production of palm oil. And -and cap-and-trade systems that are being talked about, that give permits to polluting corporations, actually stifle rather than encourage technological innovation. What many of these non-solution, solutions, or partial solutions have in common is they offer us the false hope that we can resolve the climate crisis without us having to change. They also tend to blind us to another fundamental problem. Serious efforts to address climate change and other pressing problems will inevitably be placed on back burners in a nation addicted to war. We must unite to insist that the basic needs of people today, the ecological health of the earth, and the well-being of future generations are more important than profits for the military-industrial complex and unregulated, unregulated investment houses. Those who say we can't afford to address climate change, or end poverty, or restore the Earth's ecological systems, or decent education, or health care, they have to explain why was it so easy to launch and sustain a catastrophic and illegal war in Iraq that will end up costing at least $2 trillion. Why was it so easy? to come up with a proposal for a trillion-dollar bailout for irresponsible investment banks? Why last year, in a world threatened by climate change, did the United States spend 88 times more on war and war preparation than global warming? Why last year was the entire annual budget of the United States for helping poor countries mitigate climate problems less than 12 hours of Iraq war spending? Why did Congress last year provide 75 billion dollars for research and development of new weapon systems and three billion dollars for alternative energy? Why last year did Congress give 58 cents out of every dollar they appropriated in the discretionary budget to war and war preparation and only four cents to education and two cents to the environment? And why did the U.S. House of Representatives yesterday pass the largest military budget in the Pentagon's history? Why in a world threatened by deepening poverty and despair and climate change does the United States account for over half of all military spending and more than half of all weapons sales? Why does it maintain 750 permanent foreign military bases? Why does it position itself to fight an endless series of wars for oil? Why does it continue the disastrous occupation of Iraq, the ill-fated war in Afghanistan, and the fatally flawed and thoroughly counterproductive wars against terrorism? The dilemma that lies at the heart of our challenge to rescue the nation is this. At a time when we must address an unprecedented climate crisis, we are faced with an economic meltdown rooted in the distorted priorities of a militarized empire in serious decline. Now before you walk out or someone turns off the radio because I use the word empire to describe the United States, let me clarify, I do so because the architects of our national tragedy these past eight years have used the word empire liberally, pridefully, and arrogantly. Ron Suskin, former Wall Street Journal reporter, describes a scene in 2002 in which a White House official, uh, widely believed to be Karl Rove, bristled at the suggestion that the administration's soon-to-be-launched war with Iraq would be a disaster. According to Suskin, the official told him, that guys like me were in what we call the reality-based community, which he defined as people who believe that solutions emerge from your judicious study of discernible reality. That's not the way the world really works anymore, he continued. We're an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. In 2003, just months After the U.S. invasion of Iraq, Dick and Lynn Cheney's Christmas card included the following quote based on distorting a story from Jesus in which Jesus describes a loving God who cares a lot about sparrows and even more about human beings. This is the Christmas card. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without God's notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? In my most recent book, Saving Christianity from Empire, I make what I think is a compelling case that the people who led and lied us into war with Iraq had plans to do so before 9-11-2001, that they actively cultivated a politics of fear to lead us into that war, and that the invasion of Iraq was linked to a much bigger agenda by which they sought to use US military power to dominate the world. I reached those conclusions by reading their own documents and what they said prior to the war. Two I will call your attention to. 1992, Paul Wolfowitz and Dick Cheney wrote what was called the Defense Policy Review. What should U.S. foreign policy be now that the Soviet Union didn't exist, they asked. They said, well, now there's no one to stop us. U.S. foreign policy should set out so that we never allow another country or group of countries to challenge our power, and to achieve that goal, we will have to unleash U.S. military unilaterally on the world. The second document is from September 2000 from the Project for the New American Century. Many of the same people, including Cheney and Wolfowitz, laid out what they called "America's Grand Strategy." Their goal. How to turn present U.S. military superiority into permanent global domination. And they laid out nine keys to their plan. Dramatically increase military spending. Regime change in Iraq. Control the world's oil supplies. increase the number of U.S. foreign military bases, including putting them in the Middle East, even though they said it would result in anti-American hatred and increased terror attacks. Development of a new generation of usable nuclear weapons, militarization of space, deploying a missile shield which they said once in place, the U.S. could intervene anywhere in the world and no one could ever hit us back. Pulling out of all international agreements that limited the unilateral use of U.S. power and preventing formation or avoiding jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. This is all in their writings and writing a year before the terrorist attacks they noted that the US people weren't going to like this agenda unless quote, or, or they wouldn't like this agenda quote absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor, end quote. So please be furious at the delusions of empire but don't get mad at me for using the word. The key point is that we have a realistic chance of healing the earth and rescuing our nation. But we can do so if and only if, I repeat, if and only if, we redefine security, reject empire, and help our nation become a good global partner. Any realistic hope we have for a sustainable future depends on ending the Iraq occupation and Afghanistan war immediately. Reducing U.S. military spending by 50 percent over the next few years, making deeper cuts as part of a broader international effort to redirect global military spending to address global warming, converting war industries to production of windmills and solar panels and electric rail systems and other useful products we need, focusing our public investments on meeting the education, healthcare, housing, and environmental needs of our country. Now, given all the problems and contradictions I've highlighted, I may not need to convince many of you that we need different priorities. I may need to convince you that there are good reasons to get out of bed, good reasons to be hopeful. So I return to the wisdom of Yogi Berra. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Wouldn't it be nice if the next time you were lost, and you came to a fork in the road, there was one obvious choice. I believe that is exactly the situation we are in. Many of us feel lost, disoriented, and sometimes nearly hopeless. That makes sense. After all, we know our nation is like a car traveling 150 miles an hour over a cliff. Call it Cliff Road. We also know that most politicians don't want to hurt their chances for elections. so They don't talk about Cliff Road. They don't ask too much from the public and they don't offend corporate donors who have made trillions of dollars building and maintaining Cliff Road. The best they seem to offer is to slow the car down to 100 miles an hour. We know that solves nothing. And so we look into the eyes of a loved one and think about the future and we feel sad, a bit despairing and a little cynical. How else are we supposed to feel? Well, I want to suggest that it's time to feel and be hopeful. We have arrived at a fork in the road, and one fork, in essence, means staying on Cliff Road, which is not a bridge to nowhere, it's a road to predictable disaster. The good news is that we and millions of others know that Cliff Road is not a viable option. In my more than 30 years of public life, I have never seen a time more ripe for building a social movement capable of moving our politics, our economy, our nation in a hopeful direction. In my campaign for the United States Senate, I encountered thousands of people hungry for a politics of hope, rooted in an honest assessment of our problems, belief in the possibility of real change and meaningful alternatives, and a call to mutual responsibility and action. More good news. The roadmaps that for decades have guided us along Cliff Road have all been thoroughly discredited. They include militarization. There are no military solutions to most of the problems that we face. Also, Also discredited unregulated greed, it can destroy a country and precipitate a global meltdown. Also discredited a politics of fear, politics rooted in fear has led to unnecessary wars and systematic attacks on our decency and our democracy. Also discredited arrogant unilateralism and claims of American exceptionalism. Most US people and certainly the citizens of the world know that the United States has not been chosen by God to lead the cause of freedom or rid the world of evil, as President Bush has told us. It is all, all, we are also aware that we must reject the claims offered by many Democrats, typified by Madeleine Albright when she says, if we have to use force, it is because we are America. We are the indispensable nation." And finally, discredited is the idea that we can pursue our well-being at the expense of the earth and others. What an opportunity we have. The time is right to choose another pathway, peaceful solutions, not militarization, common good, not unregulated greed, an urgent politics of compassion, not fear, global partnerships and humility, not unilateralism and American exceptionalism, healing the earth not impoverishing it or its people. Let me conclude with some words of hope. This urgent time can be a hopeful time if we face problems with honesty and courage. We need a movement-building politics that empowers us to make vital social changes and to move candidates and elected officials to exercise the leadership we need. We, (laughs) we the people, We the people need to raise our voices and model alternatives at home, at work, in our neighborhoods, in our faith communities, and within the body politic. I hope that the ideas I have shared today or something similar will be widely discussed in communities all over this state. Authentic hope requires honesty. The decisions we make in the next few years will determine the quality of life for generations to come. We cannot afford to live in denial. Our country is unraveling. Climate change does threaten. We are rapidly heading over a cliff and our democracy is in trouble. But we cannot despair in the face of climate change or declining empire. We cannot be prisoners to small ideas. We cannot live on false hope. We cannot wait for miracles. If it is true that hope depends on honesty, it is also true that honesty depends on hope. We will face problems and work to solve them when we are hopeful and have a vision for a better future. We will make sacrifices when we believe that our actions make a difference. Strengthened by each other, I believe we can sustain one another in hope. To live responsibly in the most important decade, we must choose hope. I'm not suggesting that we look at the world through rose-colored glasses. I'm not talking about clinging to dishonest or irrational hope. I'm not promising rosy outcomes. I'm not saying that technology will save us, and I'm not telling you, don't worry, because God has a plan. We need to be courageous if we are going to build a sustainable society, challenge the military-industrial complex, and revitalize our democracy. I am asking, I am asking us to embrace our responsibilities in the most important decade. I'm asking us to free our imaginations, roll up our sleeves, and keep working because the future is precarious but not faded. I'm asking us to give expression to authentic hope through inspiring words and determined daily action. When we choose authentic hope, we accept our responsibility on behalf of present and future generations. I'm asking us to make sacrifices because we believe a better future is possible for our children and for our world. Let us live responsibly in light of what we know. There are pathways forward. We can address climate change. We can build a renewable energy economy. We can help our nation transition from militarized empire to good global partner. We can demonstrate to ourselves and to the world, that it is possible for a wasteful, resource-dependent, materialistic culture to become a just and sustainable society. We can build a powerful social movement to revitalize our decaying democracy. The first decade of the 21st century may well be remembered as the decade in which the United States denied the reality of global warming while pursuing the fantasies of empire. It is up to each of us to ensure that the second is known as the decade of global solutions, because we, the people, believed in the possibility of change and found sufficient courage and hope to embrace the challenges of the most important decade. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jack Nelson-Palmeyer. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, the senior minister here at Westminster and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is author, teacher, and political activist Jack Nelson-Palmeyer. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to thank the hundreds of individual donors who have made today's forum possible. We invite you to join us in this sanctuary for our next forum on Thursday, October 16th, when journalist Robin Wright will speak on the New Middle East, Building a Culture of Change. And now, Jack Nelson-Palmeyer, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. First question has to do with your role as a teacher. How do you find the responsiveness among students and colleges these days to the ideas that you're putting forth?
1: Well, one of the reasons that I I feel hopeful is that my experience is that in almost all settings when we talk to young people in a serious way about the world that we live in, the problems we face, that they are eager and ready to be involved. I think we have a tremendous problem in this country where we are not challenging students with this kind of information. I remember when Sarah and I lived in in Central America, one of my favorite people was uh, a Jesuit priest who had put together Nicaragua's literacy campaign. I remember him saying one time that he's really worried about young people uh, in Nicaragua because they were being asked to do too much. Then he said, but I look at your country and I think it's way worse. You don't ask young people to do anything. Uh, You don't ask them to live beyond themselves. Well, I think young people are ready to help lead and we need them desperately. But in order for young people to do that, we need to be willing to face these problems honestly and call ourselves and them to action.
0: How can we get some of our seemingly unpopular messages through the media blockade, this questioner asks, including NPR, (laughs) out into the minds of the general public? Any comments about the role of the media?
1: Well, let let me say first of all that uh, Public radio was the one a source of media that I felt actually covered my ideas uh, when I was running for, for the U.S. Senate, and, and I, I really appreciated that. I, I think in general, as many uh, people probably in this room and listening know, we do have a problem, that the media has become much more focused on entertainment, it's become much more, I think, reflective of, of the power of the corporations that own the media. Uh, I don't think that these ideas, you know, I, I'm alarmed that we spend, you know, 10 minutes every night telling us that in different ways that, that it's going to rain or it's going to be sunny. Uh, you know, how much time we have available on those, on, in those forums that aren't used to stimulate public debate about these issues. That's why I, I mentioned in my, in my talk, I hope that we can find ways uh, of, and maybe we can get the media involved if, if we all were to organize conversations around the state around these pressing issues, maybe that would be newsworthy. But even if the news doesn't cover it, we need to be doing it because these issues are so, so vital.
0: Several questions from listeners about the current economic crisis. What do you believe needs to be done immediately regarding the crisis in the short term, maybe in the longer term? How does that impact the the options for U.S. response to global warming?
1: Well, Again, the economic crisis, it seems to me, was, was very foreseeable, very predictable, and really at its heart, one of the, there are two, two things that I think we can address. One is the fundamental inequalities that we have in our economy that we have grown to tolerate. Really, since the Reagan administration in 1980, we have seen a fundamental shift in the role of government, and the role of government has been to pass laws that enrich the wealthy uh, 1 to 5%. Almost every single tax law written in this country over the last 30 years has been designed to increase wealth inequality in this country. So we need an approach beyond this crisis that sets out to do the opposite, to redistribute wealth in the economy. Second, if there's going to be public funds uh, to, to help us overcome this mess that has been caused by by unregulated greed, that's another thing that was dismantled, was the system of regulation that separated banks and insurance companies and investment banks. Uh, those regulations need to be a condition of any support that we give. If public, if public money is going to go, then we take away CEO, CEO salaries and bonuses. Uh, we, heads roll and re, we replace incompetent people within those uh, corporations and banks. If we're going to provide public money then uh, we get ownership, we the people of the United States get ownership of, of those companies because of the degree that we're investing. And then one other uh, simple thing that we could do, I think it was until 1968 there was a tax that was imposed on any Wall Street transaction and what that did was it kept Wall Street from being a casino capitalist arena and it made people think a little bit before they flew all these. Uh, paper profits around. Uh, That would also be another core thing that I would include in any uh, plan that we have to to help these these companies.
0: You're calling for creative and new solutions to climate and economic problems. Can those only be addressed by a third or a new political party? What do you think of uh, the possibility of the rise of another political party?
1: Well we really have a, a fundamental problem uh, in terms of third parties in this country, and it's really constitutional. It, we, we've really set up a system that, that lends itself much more to, uh, to the, the two-party winner-take-all system. So it's very difficult for third parties to arise. And you know, some people ask me, why, why did you uh, run as a Democrat? And, and, and one of my answers was, well, I looked at the capacity of the Greens, and I didn't think they had a capacity to address these issues or, or run effective statewide campaigns. I looked at the Republicans, and uh, that didn't look good. Uh, and I looked at the Democrats, and i have been connected to, you know, the more the Wellstonian wing of the Democratic Party, the Democratic wing, wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, so, I. I made a decision to continue working there because the time frame I felt was so short, and, and I really believe uh, that that the transformation has. I, I put my my, uh, my energy there. Now, I think, quite frankly, that if the issues that I've raised are taken seriously, it it uh, poses profound challenges for any of the political parties, and I think it is. Uh, that's why I'm talking about a citizen movement and the strength of the citizen movement is going to have to cross those party lines in a common effort to literally heal the, work, uh, the earth and rescue the nation.
0: What thoughts do you have regarding the initiative sponsored by Congressman Dennis Kucinich to establish a Department of Peace at the Cabinet level?
1: Well, you know, there's, there's uh, one common refrain that we hear of why we don't need one. Uh, the, the The critics say we don 't need one because we, ha- we already have it it 's called the State Department <laughs> and I think there has been there, there, there's, that, that doesn 't work first of all i don 't think that that 's a good, good answer and the State Department, quite frankly, has been decimated uh, over the last eight years uh, by by this White House, and a lot of powers have shifted elsewhere um, so that, that, that i don 't agree with that so I actually am a strong proponent of of uh, the Cabinet position, Department of Peace. Now, here's the dilemma, and it's a really important one. The dilemma is it's a Cabinet-level position. That means who sets the, who, who, who does the appointments. Well, I can't imagine that the Department of Peace would have kept us out of Iraq under a Bush presidency. But what I say to people who say that's a reason not to have one, I say, well, I look at the Department of Peace in a similar way that I look at Supreme Court justices. It's one of the things that should be guiding us as we enter the ballot box. So if, if we have a cabinet level Department of Peace that focuses on issue of violence and conflict resolution and domestic violence and, and, and conflict res- resolution and international affairs, I think we need that. I think we need to recognize that its power will be limited by the will of the president and the politics of a president. But that should be one of the deciding factors that we use when, when we vote.
0: What countries in the world serve as good examples of best practices to achieve environmental improvements? What are they doing?
1: Well, the first thing to say is every country in the world has a long ways to go. Um, but, a couple of things that are, that are being done. Uh, Germany and Japan, for example, have had significant financial incentives for the solar power industry. And those incentives have, have resulted in Germany and Japan being far ahead of the United States in terms of homes and businesses that have, 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 have solar power. So that's an illustration of, of uh, a, a method that, that works in terms of giving incentives. In terms of the disincentives, uh, all the other industrial countries of the world have exercised far greater leadership in identifying that we in fact face an urgent climate crisis And they have at least bodies in place that are working actively on that. Now, looking at the data, in my view, uh, none of them has come close to what we actually need to do. But in not coming close, they are so far ahead of the United States that we should all be ashamed, quite frankly. So we need, and there are are other, other, Denmark and, and wind power. Um, wind power is actually growing quite dramatically in in a number of places and we desperately need that wind is one of our 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 best hopes Um, according to US government figures three states the wind in North Dakota Kansas and Texas there's enough wind if we harness it from those states not only to provide all of our electricity needs but all of our energy needs so there's tremendous potential here but I think the the power of inertia, the power of the oil industry, uh, which has never been better represented in Washington than they have the last eight years, and the power of, of, again, the absence of a citizen movement that is really pushing bolder alternatives. Uh, we, we, We desperately need that. And I think what we're seeing is that that recognition is building worldwide. But what we're also seeing is that when there is an economic crisis like the one that we have that is spilling over elsewhere, people tend to be willing to put the climate change issue more on the back burner. So what we need to do is make a strong case, which is, I think, ironclad, that the way we get out of this mess is that we, in fact, shift the resources that I talked about and start building the solar panels and the windmills and the electric rail trains and all the products that we need to make this transition to a sustainable society. That is the future of, of, of the economy.
0: What about nuclear energy? Are you taking nuclear power out of the possible solutions to the energy
1: and global climate crisis? Nuclear power is not a solution. It is, it is a great temptation. It's sitting there and people are, are looking we are looking for ways that we can solve this problem without changing and nuclear power will create far more problems. So here's some of the problems. It's unbelievably expensive. In fact, not one nuclear power plant would be built in this country if we as taxpayers didn't didn't foot the bill for insurance, for decommissioning, for all kinds of, of, of the process. So it's not economically viable. It's only economically viable because of the power of lobbyists. Second, if I am right, and I believe I am, or the climate scientists are right, more importantly, We have less than a decade. If we pour hundreds of billions of dollars into nuclear, we won't get a nuclear power plant online for a decade. That money should be going to an emergency program for conservation, for wind, for the other things that I've talked about. We also have the problem of nuclear waste. Uh, No one knows what to do with it. There still is no solution. That's a proliferation issue. It's also just a safety issue. Uh, issue. Imagine transporting nuclear materials throughout our entire country to one site. How idiotic. How how, uh, unsafe. So nuclear power is not part of the solution. In my view it is one of the major threats along with the idea of clean coal that we face. That we're not going to actually shift the resources in a massive way that we need into these alternatives. We're going to let those industries step in, influence politicians, and move us down a pathway that will not lead to a sustainable future. So we, the people, need to counter that.
0: The current political and cultural realities in America have created a huge divide among our people. It seems that any dialogue is impossible. How do you bridge the gap?
1: I have found two things really helpful and maybe the the, the first one is the most important. I find that I can have a worthwhile, valuable, meaningful conversation with almost anyone. And I think the key is to start out listening. So in my campaign, one of the things I did was I held listening sessions in communities and lots of different people came and lots of people came who didn't agree with me. So I think that that's part of what we need, is a style of communication that actually is willing to hear from people who differ from us and willing to listen and try to understand. The second thing that I think is helpful uh, is that, what I said earlier, there's so many things that have now been discredited. And what I found is that many, many people are open to a conversation about a different future because they recognize we are headed over a cliff. You do not have to go out and say much to anybody about that things are bad. People get that in their own lives. So I think that there is a space now available where we can talk in concrete ways about what are we gonna do together so that we make sure that we have a healthy planet? What are we gonna do together to make sure that our children and grandchildren have a decent future? How can we move forward together in ways that allow us to do those things? And I, That's what I said in my 30 years of of, uh, public life. On the one hand, I've never felt so urgent about the disastrous course the country is on. On the other hand, I've never felt more hopeful about the actual situation in terms of being ripe to break down some of those barriers.
0: There are a number of other questions here, Jack, that I will present to you uh, in person uh, on these cards. We don't have time for them on the air. Thank you very much, Jack Nelson-Palmeyer.
1: Thank you.